episode recorded during a virtual working session which took place as part of the 17th Parlamerica's plenary assembly towards a circular economy, Canadian Senator Rosa Galvez, Vice President of the Parlamerica's Parliamentary Network on Climate Change for North America, moderates a panel discussion between Mr. David Oswald, Founder and President of Design and Environment, and Ms. Virginia Rose Lozada, Specialist in Sustainable Enterprise Development and Job Creation for the International Labour Organization. The panel discusses good practices to achieve a circular economy and the social, economic, and environmental factors that should be considered to attain a just transition. On um, circular economy, I just want to just reiterate that, uh, you know, the linear extract, transform, use, waste economic model relied on infinite quantities of cheap, easily accessible natural resources and energy. But this model is inconsistent with the finite resource planet Earth in which we all live. It, it has reached its physical limits and we know it. Now, we have to be wise. We know that COVID has induced um, a reduction on humanity's ecological footprint because of a reduction of our acquisition power and uh, buying power, and it has changed our habits. But we shouldn't be taking this as a celebration. The pandemics, the lockdowns, the inequality of the impacts have taken us all by surprise. This crisis, its impacts on our in our government response, we are at a historical moment. We parliamentarians, we have an important duty to fulfill. We are accountable for the success or failure of the response, and we must use every opportunity to build a more resilient society. We have to use this pandemic as a big, big lesson and come out wiser. We need to see it as an opportunity to provoke and promote a constructive and inclusive, inclusive conversation on possible ways to move forward together. So circular economy is a concept that goes in that direction of resetting the economical model, conserving natural resources, restoring and regenerating them by design and aim to keep products, components and materials at their highest utility and value at all times in a closed circular model. We have to distinguish and consider and integrate both the technical and the natural cycles, whether they are chemical, biological, or ecological. Circular economy seeks to ultimately decouple the economic development from a finite resource consumption. Its efficiency enables to attain key policy objectives, such as generating clean economic growth, creating jobs, and reducing environmental impact, including carbon emissions. My office just released um, a document, a white paper discussion on the clean and just recovery that I'm going to share with you in the chat room. And without further talk, we will start with our panel. First speaker, Mr. David Oswald is a designer and environmental scientist. He is founder of the Design and Environment 
whose team brings deep expertise in environmental science and creative design to the most progressive environmental challenge of the planet. He is called upon by international organizations such as the United Nations for decision support in climate change adaptation and risk analysis. And his creative expertise has been showcased on major global projects. So, Mr. David Osval, the floor is yours. Oh, why thank you. Um, so I'm going to um, I'm going to follow um, the way I'm going to handle this is just basically follow the directed questions that I've been given, uh, and then also provide some examples of um, of work that we've done and and we're doing right now, uh, just to kind of ground the discussion a bit. So the first question that I've um, I've been given is uh, why is a circular economy such an important topic in, in the current socioeconomic climate that COVID-19 has caused. Um, so, I mean, it's a very interesting circumstance we're in. And I think what I'd like to say to groups and that I've talked to and, and students I teach and so forth is that what COVID-19 has done is it's exposed the world to serious cracks in our socioeconomic systems, um, ranging from our lack of preparedness to a pandemic of this sort, uh, also to the profound interconnectedness uh, of our economies and some of the shared vulnerabilities that we have. And it's exposed us to just simply how unresilient uh, some of our economies are, and therefore it forces us to think in terms of building a stronger and more profound adaptive capacity and resilience. Uh, and even to start of thinking of things in socioeconomic and socio-ecological uh, resilience terms. So I think um, also that the onset of COVID-19 exposes us to this uh, what I like to say is the fragile relationship between humanity uh, and uh, as a whole and nature. Because if you think of it, I mean, the running hypothesis is that uh, one small virus crossed over from, uh, from nature to human, uh, to society in a wet market in China uh, that has essentially ground our global economy to a halt. So if you think of it in those terms, some small incident leading to su such catastrophic global impacts it really causes us, it forces us to think about uh, exactly what other risks are out there and, and the way we have to look at these problems. So the next question I would pose is, well, what does this have to do with the circular economy? Well, the whole mindset of circular economy thinking uh, is predicated on having a systems perspective in how, how we go about modeling organizational community and national economies uh, and mapping out um, visually and, and spatially how inflows and outflows of economic activity actually work. Um, so this can go from simply doing life cycle analysis for individual products uh, at an organizational level, like a business, uh, to looking at national economies as a whole. So in order to better prepare ourselves uh, to these kind of disturbances or surprises, as we say in the literature, we have to start to model resilience. Uh, in our socioeconomic planning and also consider socioecological parameters. So it's not just about socioeconomic systems, but we have to also think about the coupling of society to ecosystems or ecological systems. Now in the Caribbean and Latin America, I think it's particularly, particularly in the Caribbean, we do a lot of work in the Caribbean, which I'll be sharing with you, uh, is there's, there's such a large dependence on foreign tourism as an example. It's a perfect example of how fragile these economies are with ranging from 30 to 50% of the GDP dependent on uh, foreign tourism activity, economic activity resulting from tourism. 
So uh, if we add to this situation, this problem, some of the other disturbances that are being faced by small island developing states and other countries in Latin America, um, the argument for circular economy thinking and resilience oriented perspectives, I think is even greater. Um, so one example is building resilience to climatic change through enhanced adaptive capacity. So this is something that you know, we're working on, which is closely related to the circular economy. And to give you some grounding in that, I'm just gonna put through some links of, of things that we're, we have done and we're currently working on. So one aspect of this uh, is, is data sharing. So this is a project uh, linked to a project that we did with the USAID and the five C's uh, where we've um, worked on and working with different national MET services and regional MET services to synchronize data gathering and data standards and protocols for climate data. Another aspect of this problem that needs attention is risk analysis. And often when we deal with financial organizations such as banks or uh, investors, uh, a lot of the, the vernacular that we have to use with them is around the whole idea of risk. It's not only about doing the right thing, it's about doing the thing that is gonna reduce the exposure that different organizations have, particularly when you're dealing with large amounts of investment. So this example that I'm gonna put through here is some work that we've done in actually in Trinidad and Tobago where we did agricultural risk mapping. And again, this is reliant of, uh, on, on getting data about where there's risk exposure to flooding and, and landslides and droughts and so forth. And as uh, a follow-up to that work, um, this is a, a video you hopefully will be able to download. So we worked in Trinidad and Tobago working with a group called ICA, the Inter-American Institute for Cooperation on Agriculture to do risk mapping where there's exposure to, food, to the food supply. But shortly after we did that work and identified exactly where in the country there was great exposure, if you look at that video, floods came, heavy rains like they're experiencing now in Jamaica and other countries in, in the Caribbean and Latin America and, and did exactly what we estimated was going to happen, which was profoundly impact not only the actual agricultural producers, but the infrastructure that supports agricultural production in Trinidad, Tobago. Another thing I think is important to consider within uh, the circular economy is looking at the synergies between different agendas. Now already in the introductory comments, uh, there was an allusion made to the sustainable development goals. So it's not only about efficiency and looking at how do we make things more optimal in terms of production. We also need to look at what are the different kind of object objectives within the paradigm of sustainable development, such as uh, reducing land degradation to reach land, degra land degradation neutrality by 2030, as well as conservation of biodiversity and sustainable ecosystem management. So here's a link to uh, some of the, the work that we've done with uh, in collaboration with the UNCCD, um, and which is the UN Convention for Combating Desertification on looking at how do we can reverse land degradation and restore land Thank you very much for this, the answering of this first question. Uh, let me introduce our second panelist, uh, Ms. Virginia Rose Lozada, that works in the ELO Descent Work Team and Office for the Caribbean as a sustainable enterprise specialist. Prior to her current role, Virginia was the global coordinator and the lead technical officer for the ILO's Women Entrepreneurship Development Program and the Know About Business Program. She has supported entrepreneurships and SME initiatives, programs and policies, targeting women and youth in over 15 countries in Africa, Latin America, and Asia. She can answer the question, how can a 
just transitions toward more sustainable economies, including developing a blue economy, help with diversification and job creation. Um, Mrs. Lozada, the floor is yours. Thank you so much and, and good morning to everyone. Bonjour à tous, c'est un plaisir d'être ici. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and I think it's um, it's a great question and it, I think we will, it'll go nicely with um, kind of following up with what David was just finishing off on. Um, and as you can imagine, coming from the International Labor Organization, you know, what I will be bringing in is also the labor dimension as we look towards uh, moving towards a sustainable economy. Um, and the question itself, I think, brings a lot of these, these terms that I think it's good that we seek to, to break them down a little bit um, as, we, as we move forward. And um, as the question stated, um, you know, it's, it's about the just transition. And, and I think, as we've heard from the, from the previous speakers, it is clear that uh, climate change and, and natural disasters you know, present a significant challenge uh, for sustainable development for the Caribbean. We were hearing this morning about the floods in St. Lucia. You know, we have from the very dramatic um, scenes of Dorian in Bahamas and Maria in, in Dominica to the, you know, the, the regular floodings in, in different countries in, in the Caribbean. And um, you know, in the region, we are really um, uh, being victims of, say, of uncontrolled, the uncontrolled climate impacts um, that damage infrastructure, that disrupt business activity, um, that destroy jobs. And so it's really important that we, you know, continue this conversation about changing the way that we produce, but also that we consume. Um, and that it, how we, we do that will have profound changes to, to the world of work. Now, um, in the question, we talk about just transition. Um, and just transition comes, you know, back to the 1970s. And it, it actually came and it emerged from the workers' movement in the US. And it was that the workers in um, coal and, 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 and dirty, let's say, industries, seeing how there was going to be a shift towards, towards greening and how are they going to not be left behind. And so from the International Labor Organization perspective within this um, tra transi just transition and looking for sustainable enterprises, we, we really look at how um, the structural transformation of the economies um, need to take in that socially just and inclusive transition. Um, a just transition requires that we seek to move forward a zero carbon emission economy or a low carbon emission economy um, done in a way that secures the livelihoods of those who may be displaced. And as we've, you know, within the ILO, we've done several studies and we see that um, within the greening of the economies, you know, we will see effects on four levels within terms of jobs, you know, we will, and, and within the question, we talk about job creation, but we also have to look into and consider that, you know, yes, um, we can see how new jobs will be created as we move towards a sustainable enterprises, as new sectors emerge or supporting um, services to greening um, sectors will emerge. But then there will also be some jobs that will be replaced um, and there will be even jobs that will be eliminated there will be many jobs that are, are transformed. Um, we see um, information around, you know, 15 million jobs being created, net jobs created, um, as we go into um, the greening of, of the economy. But it is also looking in towards what is the quality of those, of those jobs, right? So um, in terms of diversification, 
um, you know, that, that has been a topic that has been on the agenda of the Caribbean for, for, for decades. Um, we are in a region that is over dependent on either tourism and in some countries, like for example, Suriname or Guyana, in terms of extractive industries. So greening um, and the green jobs may be a mean to diversify the economy, though to do so, um, we really have to be, uh, there has to be really an overall commitment and will and, and an understanding of what that means. And, you know, later on, it will be also, we'll, we'll, we'll dig deeper into the, into the circular economy. And I think there, um, we, there was one of the, of the speakers before um, said it, it, it was, it, it, it really requires a complete shift in how we are looking at things. And we have to be very um, aware that it is not something that it can just be a little one thing or it is really changing our economic um, way of, of, of working, of, of, of functioning. And that we have to take into consideration um, both um, a trade-off between the short-term issues with the long term. And so that there will have to be some very tough decisions that may impact in the short run that we're doing it for the well-being in the long run. And uh, I think David also mentioned this, you know, how COVID, how the pandemic has really um, made us realize or, or come aware with those really specific um, multiple links between public health and the environment um, and has reminded us how healthy societies and productive economies um, really depend on, on healthy environments. Um, so in terms of, and, and lastly, as, as I was saying, if we are to move into a just transition, if we are to go into diversification and, and within the Caribbean, you know, we hear more and more about the importance of the blue economy. I mean, it is, we're surrounded by it, right? But we really need to look into it in, 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 in greater detail so that it doesn't just become what we would call blue washing, right? Where we just kind of put a little blue here, like we've done a little green. Um, we really need to look into, for example, how is it that we are going to manage um, fishing so that our, um, our corals are not uh, affected? How do we take care of those fishers who during a certain period will not be able to fish? We need to consider those elements. And um, ILO firmly believes that in order to do that, we need to build consensus and we need to promote um, social dialogue. Social dialogue, bringing the governments, bringing the employers, so being the private sector, but also looking at the workers themselves and for all of them to look into, okay, what is it that we can do? How can we do it? What is it that we need? And I think there as well, um, uh, and it's, you know, Parla Americas and, and you as parliamentarians have uh, a, a great um, role to play in, in raising these issues and in bringing those that, that consensus and, and, and that, those discussions and those dialogues. Um, and I was just quickly looking through the, the guidelines that, that you've put forward and you know it's, uh, you've, it's, it's a wonderful tool. I can already say it. Um, and I would just want to invite you all to have a, a look at it. Um, so from my side, that, that would be my, my answer right now. Um, and, and we can continue the conversation in, in the next round of questions. Thank you. Excellent, excellent. Thank you so much. Um, so um, the next question is to uh, Mr. Oswald. Um, what steps should countries be taking to transform their economies to circular model and how can this be financed? I think this is a very dramatic question. 
Yes, thank you, Senator Galvis. Um, uh, so just to pick up on what I was saying, I'm one of the key things about uh, dealing with these risks and vulnerabilities that we're obviously exposed to is an important first step is framing the problem, like framing the situation. I would say my argument is that we need to frame this in an environmental management lens or perspective, which is you know, something we do a lot of. So, uh, and, and in doing so, there is, uh, there's, there's no uh, one generic model per se uh, that certainly applies to countries throughout the Caribbean and Latin America. They're all quite distinct. So therefore, I mean, you have to contextualize it. And one thing that is consistent though, is you have absolutely have to consider scale when looking at these problems. Um, and one has to look at the, the, the core idea of the circular economy, which is as much as possible to minimize damage caused by outputs of industrial and economic activity and redirect output flows such as waste uh, to input flows. We have literally a circular economy and this type of closed loop thinking can be applied at the organization level. So like with businesses, for instance, um, and in this sense, uh, environmental management systems can be used to systematically monitor and track energy use, waste management, health and safety concerns. And one of the classic examples or standards of that is ISO 14001 or other environmental management standards. So implementing these types of EMSs at the organizational level, it really forces organizations to think in these terms. It literally, you have to document it if you're going to get certified or even claim that you have this. But at a different scale or a different level, and this is perhaps uh, equally and if not more, more relevant to parliamentarians, is to look at things at the provincial or state level or national levels. And similar thinking can occur at that level, looking at how energy, uh, looking how economic inputs such as energy materials uh, are used as outputs. And this is, it's a modeling exercise. It's a way of looking at modeling your economy. So tools can be applied to promote certain behaviors at this level, such as putting disincentives on wasteful production, say carbon taxes, for instance, or taxing externalities, as they say in, in the economic vernacular, and then also incentivizing sustainable behavior. So as tax rebates or subsidies for technologies or practices that are more in keeping with uh, a circular economy. But in both cases, whether you're dealing at the organizational level or at the state level, um, you, have to, uh, you have to have data. It's essential. There's, there's just no getting around that, really. So this could be at, at, at the organizational level we've already talked about for parliaments looking at greenhouse gas footprinting for national governments. And then also in some of the work that we've been doing uh, has been developing national uh, data management systems for MEA reporting, reporting to multilateral environmental agreements, which is heavily dependent on indicators and data. So I'll just push through one link here um, to give you an example of the work that we've done in St. Lucia. Uh, which is uh, developing an NEIS for them. But you need to have the data, and this closely relates to uh, the relationship between the different S SDGs. So there's some synergy there, and we can talk more about that in the discussion. In fact, I've got some colleagues here from St. Lucia. So the other part of this question is financing, and this is the critical one, is how do we pay for this stuff? What are the economic consequences? or uh, parameters. And, and frankly, I, I say to, to governments, because we work a lot with governments, is we have to be entrepreneurial about this, I would say. There is a market for sustainable development projects and this whole area of, of work and investment is doing nothing but growing. So there's a growing demand uh, by banks and financial organizations to demonstrate sustainability and their due diligence. Um, and this is a demand put on by, uh, by many financiers. 
And in addition to that, we have the growing opportunity for getting financing for national governments in the developing world through multilateral funds. So I'm going to give you some examples of programs that I think are, are, are worthy of looking at. So like the Jeff, for instance, the global, global Environmental Facility, uh, various multilateral development banks are increasingly looking at the circular economy as well as various types of environmental programs to provide financing to build capacity in developing countries. So you have to be entrepreneurial about positioning your country to gain access to those funds. Uh, here's one example of a, a, a program that I think is very cool that the IDB has put through as very recently, which is uh, their Beyond Tourism. I don't know if you're familiar with this program, but it's it's an investment fund that co-shared investment from the IDB to develop entrepreneurial activity to help move Caribbean countries post COVID and deal with some of the impacts that we've had. The other thing I will close with in terms of financing in the private sector is some very interesting trends that we're seeing with respect to the movement of private capital. So a good example of this is what BNP Paribas is doing. Um, so I'll give some links here. Uh, and some of the groups we work with are actually subject to this, where they're, they're, when I say there's disincentives, they're literally divesting from heavy carbon activities such as coal power plants and so forth, and then investing or providing um, uh, reduced interest rates and so forth from sustainable uh, on, on ventures such as renewable energy. So I think in closing, I mean, you have to have environmental management systems or that kind of lens where you look at the problem. And then you have to have to be uh, strategic and entrepreneurial about where you're looking about at financing, whether it be for government projects or private investment in uh, businesses that are operating within your countries. Um, thank you. you yeah thank you very much yes you are absolutely right opportunities are coming are being offered and uh, entrepreneurial attitudes it's uh, is the way to go uh, um, in looking for this uh, uh, green financement next question is to miss rose losada and the question is uh, um, Tourism is the most uh, important economic sector in most Caribbean countries. How can the tourism, I think you already talked, you already addressed part of this. How can the tourism sector incorporate circular economy practice and strategies into their operations? And how can public policy play a role in this? Thank you so much. Um, let me also first start off by, by because I'm, I'm hearing David say it, and I, I do think it's it's an important element, and, and it is the the importance of data, right? Um, when we look at anything, and 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 how within the Caribbean that that uh, is overall um, a challenge um, in terms of the tourism sector, and and also within this very specific um, time that we were living in with with the pandemic. Um, the ILO's uh, Office for the Caribbean back in August um, published a report on the impact of COVID um, on, on, on the sector because it is, as, as, as it's pointed out, you know, the, the main sector um, for many of the Caribbean islands. And, and just to give you again, as, um, as someone else before said, you know, the data and the facts are important. Um, you know, it contributes 30, almost a third to the GDP of, of the region. Um, it directly employs over 400,000 people. Um, and if you touch, uh, if you include the indirect, you know, it, it goes into an average of 43%. Um, but that also, you know, is skewed in the sense that in some cases, for example, a, an Antigua and Barbuda can go up all the way to 90%. 
Um, so the, the, the impact that, um, that, that this has on, on the Caribbean is, is huge. And it's, it's um, when we look at the kind of tourism and, and we've also been hearing it this morning, you know, I think the situation with, with the pandemic and also climate change is really putting us in a position where we need to reconsider, re rethink um, the tourism sector in, in, in the region. And, and I've heard several initiatives um, that, that push in that, in that, sec in that way, um, in, in Barbados, for example. Um, I think that, um, and, and, and it's, it's to kickstart that, that new way of looking at, at tourism, um, a circular economy is, is a fundamental shift in the way that we produce and we consume. Um, it significantly changes the economy and the society. Moving into a circular economy, and again, I'm coming from, from the labor perspective, you know, we've estimated that worldwide it would increase, um, uh, th there would be a creation of about six to seven million jobs. Um, which may not look seem as as a significant big number, but I think it's it's also in terms of how a circular economy can improve the conditions of work, and that is where um, there's a lot to be done. Now, in terms of how that can be, and and you know, building off of what already has been said, and it may be in different terminologies. I think it is very important that we map out the different value chains um, of that, that contribute to the tourism sector. I think we need to map out um, where are the different um, elements and where in each different uh, parts of the value chain we can introduce circular economy practices. Um, I think there's also something to be said in terms of how we um, engage with those big multinationals when they come in to invest in our countries. I think there we have discussions to be had in terms of and 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 and, and to, you know demands to be made in terms of how uh, circular economy elements can be put into um, and how they are responsible for certain elements so that you know it, it, it is their responsibility as well in, in bringing in that that circular economy element. Um, so I, I do think that while there is no, and as it was said previously, there is no one solution or no one way of introducing circular approaches. I think that each country within how they look at, 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 at tourism, whether it's, you know, looking at the big cruise companies, that that is a big element for certain, the big multi uh, tourism hotels, the even looking at the tourism guides and sector. And we have to map those out and there identify um, in the different elements how can we play into this circular economy um, elements? Um, and, and that does take, again, um, analysis um, that takes looking into having the data, having the information to make those kind of strategies possible. Thank you. Yes, I cannot agree more with both of you by saying that we have to scale and we have to be specific to the country that we are we are studying. Um, when I did my white paper that I share with you the um, the link, uh, I I look at what. Um, other countries have done and um, try to take out what it's applicable to Canada. And, and so like that, we can be inspired by different examples that are that are taking place uh, all uh, around the world. And uh, we, for example, in Canada, we, we pay a lot of subsidies to the oil and gas industry, a lot. And right now we are at the risk of having stranded assets because of the crash on the oil price. And so this brings a specific situation and context to, to us. I want to take advantage that uh, you were speaking, Mrs. Losada, to ask you um, um, 
how can circular economy and just transition strategies better integrate women and youth and promote their economic opportunities? As we know, COVID has impacted, we are all in the same storm, but we are not in the same boat. So, um, you know, uh, minorities, racialized minorities, women and children and the old people have been hidden harder. So um, how can we help uh, women and youth? Thank you so much for that question. And, and it is a crucial question. And I, I, I kind of feel bad saying that actually there is no silver bullet. Um, and that there is no one way of doing it. And, and you know, while we, you know, we may think that greening the economy will in somehow um, naturally uh, bring in those actors, it is, it, it is not being the case. And so we have to be very purposeful um, and we have to take it on and we have to make sure that as we look at the, um, the issues around both greening the economy and circular economy um, and all the different policies that need to be looked into and that we have to kind of work on in a coherent way that the um, issues of not only women and youth, but in some, you know, indigenous, how um, are we bringing them in? Um, and again, we're seeing, for example, that in, in the circular economy, I mentioned before that we're looking at about six to seven new, million new jobs. Uh, but when we look at who are you know, those that will be mostly impacted as we move towards a, a, a greener economy and a circular economy, it's really the, the mid-skilled um, employees who will be affected and that they will either be losing their jobs or that they will uh, have to move into or transition into new jobs. And we see that that is mostly a male-dominated male dominated areas so that already there, it will be pretty, you know, it, there will be policies and it'll come pretty much more naturally that there will be looking at how do we retrain, how do we, you know, make sure that these, um, these employees have the right skills, um, the right protection as they transition into this new economy. However, for example, when we're looking at the um, tourism, um, we see that it is in the Caribbean, it is mostly uh, females. It's about 60% of those working are women. Um, and how, you know, if we are to transition into uh, introducing circular economy aspects or approaches within the, we need to see how those are going to be um, addressed um, within this population. But in terms of how do we kind of pull um, youth and women into these, into this, the new, let's say, sectors that would emerge. Um, again, it is that we have to um, be very aware of it. Um, it has to be something that we purposely look at because if we don't, um, it will, it, it won't happen naturally. Um, it also um, requires that, again, as we were saying before, you know, that as we map out and that we analyze the different elements that we already look into where are these women or where are they not? Where is the youth? Where are they not? Where could they be? How do we ensure that they have um, a, a career path or, or a way of moving up along um, specific sectors so that we don't end up like we are now where we, you know, we do find ourselves uh, where sectors where there are, the women are overall or generally um, in, in, lower, in the lower end of value chains um, where the working conditions and where the um, their, their, 
their capacity of, of generating income is lower um, than further up the value chain. So I think again, um, it's it's about being um, uh, that that we make we be conscious about it, that we understand that you know no matter what we do, there will be an impact on um, on women, on men, on and that we need to look into if we want to make a positive pull effect um, that there needs to be a combination of both mainstreamed as we call it activities but also specific programs to support youth to make them access the necessary um, uh, finance um, for for coming into this these account these new sectors the same for women um, how do we uh, kind of um, design our programs in a way that ensures that they are able to participate, that they are able to not only take part, but be owners of their own um, of their own decisions um, and of their own income generation activities within these new sectors. Um, so, like I said, um, it's 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 unfortunately not. There's no silver bullet. Thank you. Thank you. I think we uh, um, attain uh, the consensus that coming out of COVID, we we, sh we are all in favor of a clean, a smart, fair um, reset of our economy and that creativity, innovation and um, cooperations are the, are the ways to go. And um, also we are now at the time of discussing the approach. So we have heard about uh, the using the incentive and disincentive incentive for the good behavior disincentive for all um, all economic models that didn't work for us now what is the role the question for both but i'll start with um, uh, david how can parliamentarians support the transition to a circular economy and help transform the workforce to being more sustainable for example, do you know of any example of parliaments using fiscal incentive and legislative mechanisms for this transition? Thank you very much. I would say to summarize my response uh, would be to be um, proactive and to be demanding as parliamentarians. Those two things, and I'll give you two examples. So uh, in terms of being proactive, uh, and this is speaking to uh, Ms. Lozada's comments as well, like how do you address things such as uh, the need for gender empowerment and the uh, involvement in youth or increased youth engagement on these issues? Well, I think that really boils down to, in, in part, at least certainly from the parliamentarian position, is to craft policy or policy frameworks that can actually realize those objectives. So a good example that I would like to cite is something that we worked on, which is with the government of Guyana, and the United Nations Environment Program's Green State Development Strategy. So we worked with uh, the in-country UN team, and I believe Deidre is on this call, and hopefully she can contribute during our dialogue, uh, to the monitoring and evaluation, the M&E program for the GSDS. And what the GSDS is a very good example of is an evidence-based policy framework that supports a wide range of sustainable initiatives, including circular economic, circular economic activity, but also uh, gender mainstreaming and the empowerment of youth uh, and addressing issues such as uh, green transformation, renewable energy. And what's so interesting about the GSDS is that, and similar to uh, Senator Galvis, your comment about the Canadian situation where we're heavily, heavily leveraged on you know, a fairly unsustainable source of economic activity. Well, Guyana is just entering into that potentially similar problem, right? 
So the issue, and, and the, the, it's a good example to look at because when we looked at that, both from an economic and indicator standpoint was the fact that we had to consider non-oil GDP as well as like a sustainable GDP and make sure that we weren't placing all our eggs on this kind of new form of economic activity that they're rolling into. So uh, I would say that be evidence-based uh, to promote these initiatives, but the parliamentary position, you can push these agendas forward and legislate them. So I'll just share the links to the GSDS, and I'm sure the representatives from Guyana are quite familiar with it. The other part of this, my response here in terms of being demanding, and this again speaks to uh, uh, Ms. Lusada's comment about um, multinationals. So when you have co corporations, either domestic or multinational corporations coming into your country or wanted to come in, be demanding with them, you know, be demanding as to what you expect in terms of how they're going to run their business. Um, and you can leverage your power uh, to in order to do that. And I, I will give you one example, because often they'll push back and say, oh, well, we can't do that. Well, the example of Puma as the company that you're probably all familiar with as a sportswear company is a really good one because they're, they're one of the most progressive companies I know out there with respect to incorporating environmental management principles to the extent to which they, have, they issue an environmental profit and loss account as well as their PL, meaning they put economic value to all of the environmental parameters that they impact or use in their production of their goods. So the water they used, the cotton they used, where they used it, and they use really practical and, and credible economic valuation from TEEB, the economics from ecosystems and, and biodiversity as their, their benchmark. So I'll just share Puma's, uh, some links to Puma's um, work. And, and what this says to me, and in fact, I've met the, the CEO of Puma who, who spearheaded that movement, is it can be done. It needs the leadership on the part of the corporation, but also the incentive and the demands from parliamentarians for these companies to actually do that. But it's very doable and it makes a lot of sense for those companies. Thank you. Yes, I can. I couldn't agree uh, more with you. Um, you know, in Europe, uh, the question of the multimedia and not paying taxes and force them to pay taxes, it, it proved that we can do we can do something about it and that um, extending the responsibility of corporations post selling their products, it's, it's important to make them responsible for the ways they will eventually generate. And um, also something that I talk in, in my paper is about uh, this uh, transparency, accountability, disclosure of uh, all kinds of risk. Climate change risk, for example, in in uh, in, in some provinces in uh, in Canada, is becoming so important because of the damages of these extreme weather events taking place. Uh, Virginia, do you have something um, complementary comments to that answer? I, I think you know the, the, you. It, it, I have. I wouldn't have much to add. Um, I think that in terms of concrete examples, and we've actually been hearing some concrete examples from, um, from for example, from Trinidad and Tobago. Um, I think that just out of how this the, these topics have evolved and where they're emerging, you know, from the European Union, there there are quite a few examples that um, Parliament could look, Parliamericas could look into, and in which you know. I'm probably sure that you've already done so um, in looking into how you know you can use both tax incentives or or subsidies um, to kind of promote certain elements in both how you produce, but also in terms of how you consume um, to promote a more circular economy. So. 
Thank you.